You are now listening to Conscientization 101, an online magazine combining reflection, music, and action through independent media. It's uh, very important to be with conscious African women and men. And I'm very excited to see Conscientization 101, to see Sister Zari there and the brother James and uh, to see that you have started an organization to conscientize the world, especially African people about what's really going on in this world. Conscientization 101. A lot of these people right now in this conscious, so-called conscious movement, they're not actually living in that, in that lifestyle. Bakers. That's why, you know, obviously yourself, we're on the same sort of frequency. That's why you're listening to the same things I'm listening to because we're sharing that same sort of thought. We want the same sort of things and a lot of people don't want the same sort of things. Even yourself, what you're doing now is for the people. So everything is people-based. Globally conscientizing. What's making me proud of what um, this kind of connection here is that, you know... Well, no matter what is said, no matter what is done, um, you, you leave that, you leave listening to our music with a feeling. The same way we're going to leave this conversation with a feeling. And um, that is the most important thing you know, for, for I and I, the, the vibe and the energy and the feeling that you leave with. Because you might not remember every lyric, but you're going to remember the feeling. So um, that's, 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 that's really important, and that's what I'm getting from what you're doing. Doing, doing, doing. Welcome to another episode of Conscientization 101. Conscientization. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Conscientization 101 Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, James Stone, Senior Editor for Conscientization 101. And today we continue with part two of our series, Wielding Words Like Weapons with Ward Churchill. All right, as you know from listening to the previous episode, 51, this series is a dialogue between Conscientization 101 and acclaimed American Indian Movement activist, intellectual Ward Churchill about his phenomenal book, Wielding Words Like Weapons, Selected Essays in Indigenism, 1995 through 2005. All right, like we told you last time, these dialogues took place over the course of two days, September 15th, 2018, and October 27th, 2018. Now, since the last episode, we hope you've been able to check out the book. And if not, you know we will link to it in our show notes. For those of you who have access to the public library, check it out there as well. You might have to get an interlibrary loan in case it's not at your branch. But like we always try to emphasize, the important thing is that you get a hold of the book and you get a hold of the analysis. Now, what you're about to hear today comes from the second day of the dialogue. October 27th, 2018, which came in at a little over four hours. And since the dialogue was over four hours, we decided to break up the October 27th, 2018 dialogue into two parts. Okay, part two of this series comes in at over two hours. So today's episode, we feature excerpts from Wielding Words Like Weapons with War Churchill, Part 2. And as always, we will tell you how to get a hold of the unabridged dialogue at the end of the show because you really need to listen to the entire unabridged dialogue, all right? Now, let's get into what we will be discussing on this episode with Brother Ward, shall we? All right, in this episode, we go into detail about indigenous people in Western cinema. Specifically about the functionality of pejorative depictions of indigenous people in cinema to the settler colonial project known as the Americas. Its effect on indigenous people and much more. We also open the door on a discussion about postality. You know what I'm saying? Like post-colonialism, post-racism, 
postmodernism, etc. You know all that post toasty oat bullshit. Post racism, post this. All you colorblind motherfuckers. Anyway, without further ado, we present excerpts from Wielding Words Like Weapons with Ward Churchill, Part 2. Here, only on Conscientization 101 Podcast. <laughs> All right, we are back. This is part two with Ward Churchill. It's October 27, 2018. We are back to talk about his book, Wielding Words Like Weapons, Selected Essays in Indigenism, 1995 to 2005. We're going to pick up right where we left off. First of all, Ward, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. How are you? I am doing doing good. Excellent. Okay, I am. Oh, I'm pumped. All right, we're going to go with question five. Now, I'm sorry, people. This is going to be a rather long question, but you can't You have somebody like Ward Churchill on here. You can't just ask him, uh, do you think if you adopted a vegan lifestyle, you'd be happy? <laughs> you can't ask shit like that, okay? Okay, this is not a... I'd be happy. <laughs> this is not a lifestyle channel. <laughs> yeah, well... You know, your lifestyle makes all the difference. It does. It does. If we could just build that better bike path, you know, the world's problems would be resolved. Don't don't forget we have to dress in hemp clothing. Okay. That costs fifty dollars well, for a t shirt. It's it's a hundred and ninety five dollar spandex outfit to go with the bike path because you gotta have a nine hundred dollar mountain bike to even approach it. Exactly. Of course. I mean, would it be uh-huh. any other way? Your head makes you look like a rolling mushroom. <laughs> That's it. You can clog up, take back the streets that were never built for you in the first place. <laughs> act like, mm, oh well. There we, there we go. This is what it's going to be like, listening audience. This is how we roll. Okay. <laughs> Question five. The unbroken late African revolutionary George L. Jackson once said, prestige bars any serious attack on power. Do people attack a thing they consider with awe, with a sense of its legitimacy? This is George Jackson in Blood in My Eye. This is page 50. Uh, this, this, this quote bring, this brings to mind uh, a part in wielding words like weapons when you discuss former University of Colorado president, former Republican senator from Colorado, and as I, to quote from the book, a founder and still a key player in the Lynn Cheney organized American Council of Trustees and Alumni. ACTA, an organization, now get this listening audience, an organization claiming devotion to the cause of preserving the integrity of academia, a tenured professor of political science. That means he ain't never going to lose his job, right? Tenured, right? Supposedly. Because we know with Ward, it was a little something different, right? When you, you ain't the right type of tenure. His name is Hank Brown. Hank Brown. When deposed uh, by uh, Ward's attorney, David Lane before the 2009 lawsuit against the University of Colorado for violating your First Amendment rights by firing you from a tenured, like I said, professorship and retaliation from your views expressed. And some people push back on the justice of roosting chickens, which was, by the way, written in September 11th, 2001 and published on September 12th on Dark Night. Field notes, blog journal, pockets of resistance, number 27, but came to the settler's attention uh, uh, three and a half years later in 2005. I just want to bring that up. You know, now this is what Hank Brown said. This is the, the erudite guy. Remember George Jackson said, you look at these people in awe. They never make mistakes to you. This is what Hank Brown said. He stated, his initial perception of my little Eichmann, this is quoting, uh, quoting you from wielding words, wielding words like weapons. His initial perception of my little Eichmann remark was that it was was anti-Semitic. Brown goes on to state, he labeled your remark (laughs) anti-Semitic. I'm sorry, listen to the audience. Because he felt the name Eichmann must have been that of someone Jewish. That was what he said, someone Jewish. So this settler, Hank Brown, thought Otto Adolf Eichmann was Jewish because Get this irritation, guys, because his name sounded Jewish. Whoa. 
Mind you, listening audience, at the time, Brown confused Eichmann as a Jewish victim of the Jewish Holocaust. He was an ACTA-selected university president, roundly applauded by the right for his staunch defense of academic excellence. Okay, so I guess, you know, this guy would think Tyrone Jenkins sounds like an indigenous African name as well, right? Or, you know, Cedric or Tito or something like that. Tito. Tito. You probably think that's a real black name. Okay. Jamal. Jamal. That's that's African-y enough, you know, something like that. Uh, basically, what we're getting at is that these settlers are not inherently imbued with genius as they would have us believe. One of the things a colonizer has to do is to make you believe in their omnipotence. Colonizers are able to do this through their superstructure. And what must be understood is that it is their superstructure, which comes from their culture. It isn't universal, as they would have us to believe. Now, juxtapose Brother George's quote, and the anecdote from wielding words like uh, wielding words like weapons, we want to discuss chapter 10 called American Indians in Film, Thematic Contours of Cinematic Colonization. You note early on in the chapter, quite accurately, indeed, no overstatement is embodied in observations that film and video have long since become the key media for articulating the master narrative with which North America's elites North America's elites explain their history and thus themselves to the world. It comes as no surprise then to discover that virtually without exception, Hollywood's massive spew of cowboy and Indian movies have been devoted to misrepresenting the actualities of native cultures as well as those of the emphatically Euro-derivative settler societies that have taken root and flourished here over the past several centuries, continuously rationalizing, sanitizing, inverting, in other words, systematically falsifying the nature of the process by which the latter have come to all but come to all but completely decimate, they can come to completely decimate, dispossess, and dominate the former. Page 18, wielding words like weapons. All right. We would like you to discuss the ways in which films systematically created an inferiority complex within indigenous people. You know, i.e. the Indian woman always falling for the white boy, uh, portraying <laughs> Indians who are, are for their people as crazy, and, and white folks is better Indians than Indians. I love that one when you talked about that one. They can throw the tomahawk better than anybody else. Incorrect <laughs> locations of various uh, uh, polities and in Indian nations like putting the Seminoles in the Plains area and stuff like that. I want you to discuss that and the pathological effects this has on indigenous people of the Americas, how it nurtures the perception of an omnipotence naturally imbued within the settler society and relegates indigenous people to the other that can be killed for settler white actualization or as they would characterize positive roles, that of a gunkadin. So could you talk about this, the, these problematic films as you did in this chapter, Brother Ward? Well, that's a large subject. I mean, you've got, during the heyday, I suppose, starting with the silent films and coming into sound right up through the 1960s to the very early 1970s when they made the revisionist westerns, so-called. Mm-hmm. You've got roughly 2,000 Hollywood films that are released on the general theme you're just talking about, depicting the relations between one or another of the settler groups, the influx population, the invaders, in other words, on the one hand, and indigenous peoples on the other. The indigenous peoples get collapsed in a number of ways, which we can go into. But the overall theme of that indoctrination coming out of Hollywood, thematically, there's a number of ways they approach it. Everything from um, supposed comedy, where the Indians are depicted as essentially buffoons, clowns, props, so that you have Bob Hope, for example, stand up and fire a six gun in the general direction of a bunch of Indians and a half a dozen of them fall off their horses. So, hey, not bad. One shot with a six gun and you knock down six in, uh, Indians. 
you know, six shots, you'd have 36. Yeah. <laughs> in there. It's just ridiculous stuff like that. The Duncan Indian trope that, that fits into that and so forth. All the way over to grim drama where Indians are a sort of force of nature, malevolent, uh, adverse to the nobility of the, the project progress, if you will, the civilizing pro uh, process, which is depicted in the uh, noble settlers heading west, you know, mm -hmm. facing into the wilderness and my goodness, the bravery that goes into that, the sacrifice that goes yep. into the creation of God's dominion out of a howling wilderness that's, you know, got all kinds of formidable wildlife, everything from grizzly bears to Indians. Good God, all of them threatening. Mm -hmm. Kill all of them systematically. And, okay. Actually, <laughs> the first, uh, first two films ever made in different genres, okay? Uh, the first uh, dramatic narrative film, which is made... Clear back turn of the century, um, way before he did Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith, who was the director of that, uh, the pioneering director. That word pioneering comes up a whole lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. He makes a little film called The Battle of Elderbush Gulch. And of course, it's silent. You know, this is way before they have sound. It's going to be another. 30 years before you have talkies. Mm -hmm. okay. But the general plot is the settler set up shop, uh, civilizing a canyon somewhere in the ambiguous West. And then these Indians come. Um, the Indians are upset. You don't know exactly why probably has something to do with that's their Canyon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> The Indians circle around a campfire to discuss the matter. And um, they kill and eat a dog. And that's that's an actual thing. You don't see that very much in uh, cinematic discourse. But dog has ceremonial purposes. And mm -hmm. it's also sustenance in bad times. You know, dog, dogs are a food supply. Mm -hmm. And you feed dogs, you know. A lot of locales and for a, a range of purposes. So the Indians kill a dog and they cook it on a fire and then they eat the dog. And it must have been a psychedelic dog because they all start tripping out, <laughs> you know, get completely demented and attack the settlers. And okay, that's the very first narrative film anywhere. Hmm. You know, it's in the U.S., but that's the benchmark for establishing narrative cinema, fictional wow. cinema, for the world. Mm -hmm. The other is called uh, something called The Indian Wars Refought, which is the first sort of docudrama. It's not a documentary, per se, but it is the foundational film for what becomes the genre of docudrama is called the Indian Wars Refought. And what it is is a staging of the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890 when the 7th Cavalry, I would suppose you'd have to say, gets even for <laughs> Custer's etiquette lesson at the Little Bighorn mm -hmm. in 1876. So, you know, basically, that's where you got a half-frozen bunch of Minicanji Lakotas they're trying to get um, to Red Cloud Agency, Pine Ridge, so that the Oglalas can offer them protection because they're being chased to gross dancers off of the Standing Rock Reservation. So they made about a 300-mile trip on foot with some horses in really abysmal northern plains conditions. You're talking well below zero most of the time. They're mostly sick. They're exhausted. They're hungry. And they get surrounded by the 7th Cavalry, disarmed, okay, dismounted, held in this little valley overnight in the first thing in the morning. Well, the story goes, the historical story, the actual history, it's claimed that an Indian had managed to 
keep hold of his weapon and fired a shot, and then the soldiers responded en masse. Mm-hmm. Firing volleys, <laughs> circular firing squad, so a bunch of them shot each other. But, I mean, come on, U.S. Army, firepower, <laughs> but not much kill. And Hotchkiss guns, essentially prototype machine guns against unarmed people in a condition I've just described. Mostly women, children, and old people. There's about 30 younger men in the group, typically considered to be fighting age males, as it's put in the literature. And you got bodies strung out for three miles. I mean, it's just, they don't have an accurate count, but I, I use the number 350, which is fairly common. They keep trying to take that down. Mm-hmm. Uh, minimization. Okay, well, we didn't kill that many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Killed 300, or we only killed uh, 275, or I've seen it as low as 150. I've not really seen it go any lower than that. So, how many people you killed become not the fact you just massacred whoever was in front of you, mm-hmm. right? But how many? It's the uh, minimization trick that Holocaust deniers use routinely. Mm-hmm. Six million is too high. Well, the more accurate counts, 5.1 million, but we can play with the census records and we can get it down to two. And the lowest one I've seen was that there were somewhere a couple hundred thousand Jews made. <laughs> um, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> there was a guy named Paul Rassinier who pioneered that technique. But, I mean, mm-hmm. he picked up from what I'm talking about here, the way they did history of the fatalities that were inflicted militarily on native people. There's a, another broad range that are not directly military, more indirect killing techniques, starving people, dislocating them. Yes. Yes. Conditions like I just been describing where less resilient folks would have died trying to make that trip in, in that blizzard. Yeah. Um, there's some tough people. Again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the docudrama sets the stage. It, the Indian Wars Report is just this one event that they're reinterpreting factually. This is how it really was, and you can see it on the screen. Hmm. The massacre is precipitated by uh, Minikandru Lakota women, okay? And the way they assault the troops is throwing their babies at the soldiers who are compelled to defend themselves against these flying baby bodies. I mean, grotesque, just absolutely bizarre. Mm. I don't know what kind of dog the filmmaker was eating. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> this is produced by the William F. Coding uh, production company, <laughs> Buffalo Bill, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it works out from there. So the soldiers were in extreme peril because there's babies hitting them in the face and stuff like that. Just absolute (laughs) insanity. And this is being passed before the public, Mm -hmm. generally speaking, as the explanation of what it was done. At the time this was done, Wounded Knee was a recent event. And there were some people who were upset about the idea of this just mass slaughter mm-hmm. for which the troops were awarded uh, medals of honor, not the Congressional Medal. Okay, that is a matter I say often get confused. It's talking about there is 30-some-odd uh, medals of honor awarded to the troops in that carnage. I mean, these people were defenseless, essentially, mm-hmm. butchered. And then they get medals of honor. This is a, a deed imbued with honor, but not the Congressional Medal, as it's often said. There's an Army Medal of Honor mm-hmm. as well during that period. And that's, that's what was awarded. And they were, oh, I don't know, best part of 100 years later, a lot of them were revoked, but, you know, because they couldn't really cover it over. But what you're creating in a really effective and powerful way, is a false, absolute falsehood as to what happened that provides a justificatory framework for 
the audience, essentially the settler population, mm-hmm. to explain its history in a way that comes out so that you can celebrate it. Yeah. A sort of triumphalist narrative that's false in the sense that I'm talking about false in detail from start to finish. Mm-hmm. That's what's being conveyed. But then you, you got a number of other factors that fit in. You can you have to deal with the fact they're still Indians. Indians are supposed to go out of existence. This was a stated policy objective during the assimilation era, as they call it, during the late 19th into the early 20th centuries. It was figured that by <coughs> excuse me, the mid-1930s to somewhere around 1950, in that time frame, that Indians culturally recognizable as such that would identify as who they were, would go out of existence Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. only. You know, the census count on Indians in 1890, the time of the Wounded Knee Massacre, was less than a quarter million remaining. And you got this, yeah, over, which also leads to another grand historical falsification, although this is not cinematic, this is academic, and it ties to that minimization thing that, Figures in Holocaust denial is a technique. Well, here's the mm-hmm. thing of that. they doing uh, demographic estimates on how many Indians there were to begin with. You've got a census count, according to certain. It's distorted because you've got federal rules in terms of identifying who's an Indian for yep. the, the census. But that's where you get the quarter million count. But then the question becomes, well, how many were there to begin with? And you know, my generation and generations before, and for the next generation after mine, for that matter, one million was a standard figure. So you've only got a 75 percentile range reduction in the population. And hey, <laughs> that's no worse than the Nazis. And I used to, you know, respond to that by saying, well, if that's your, <laughs> your defense, your argument, your, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, I'm good with it because if your best claim is that you're no worse than the Nazis, <laughs> <laughs> let me counter by saying, and no better either, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. just on par. But the fact is there were many, many times that number of indigenous people here to begin with soldiers didn't kill them all. All right. The indirect stuff that I was talking about, forcing people off their land into, into Mm -hmm. destitution, uh, starvation situations, death by exposure and the big disease. Nobody knew had a, a understanding of the microbial realities that went into communicable disease. Mm -hmm. They understood that you could communicate whatever it was, right? And it's often rationalized in the disappearance of Indians. You know, very few were actually killed. Everybody died of disease. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, Yeah, well, half the Jews that died during the so-called Holocaust, the Shoah, as it's put by, in Hebrew, a particular phenomena holocaust is a propaganda invention that mm-hmm. come up with by Elie Wiesel after the war in Jewish tradition it's referred to as a Shoah and it refers to their particular experience and so be it okay but half the people that died there died of typhus it was conditions that were imposed that created that but what you've really got is a population that was probably somewhere in the vicinity of 15 million. There's, there's higher estimates, but 15 million people reduced to 250,000 or less is a rather different manner than 1 million. Yeah. It's, and that's why they clung to the 1 million, despite ample evidence to the contrary for generation after generation because it minimized the impact of what was done and made it easier to explain. And if you've got that minimal populations, cause they really haven't developed 
knowledge and economies that would allow them to support a greater population. They're living hand-to-mouth, hunter-gatherers, and they always say that, too, despite the fact that two-thirds of the vegetal foodstuffs consumed commonly by humanity today were under cultivation in the Americas and nowhere else on the planet at the point the invasion begins. I don't know how hunter-gatherer encompasses <laughs> Well, I'd say agriculture, but when you refer to indigenous people, you always have to say horticulture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Horticulture, mm-hmm. agriculture, no row farming, I'll grant you that. No plows, I'll grant you that as well. And those are required to make agriculture, then I suppose horticulture is as good a word as any. But, you know, farming, crop growing, basis of economy. It, it'll, it allows for this great distortion and uh, turning indigenous people into a form of wildlife. Well, maybe not wildlife so much as vermin. Hmm. That's not usually stated straight up in the uh, films, but it is in the literature. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can take that clear back to the Peacock Massacre in 1637 mm-hmm. when you got 800 people that were basically burned alive or hacked pieces with broadswords and axes as they tried to escape the flames of the town of Mystic in Connecticut. Um, that's uh, done by the same people as the first Thanksgiving, so-called. The Indians came and saved them. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be thankful, I guess the Indians are for having saved the people that then came and perpetrated the Mystic Massacre. Right. And it was a Peacot town, and they abolished uh, the word Peacot from the language to expunge them from the memory of man, just total disappearance. Yeah. No one would even remember that they'd ever been there. Now, that's as genocidal as it's oh, possible it mm-hmm. get, according to Raphael Lincoln's definition. But they... Uh, you know, explained this to their children by a little jingle that was written up. Richard Drennan reproduces the actual page that they they had printed, you know, so Paris could sort of chime this little uh, teach the jingle to their kids who could then merrily sing it, internalize this viewpoint, and explains the mystic massacre in part as follows. Rats and mice and swarms of lice a nation can destroy. Oh, vermin, rats and mice, well, lice. Yeah, feel a little revulsion at lice. Mm -hmm. That's um, what the Indian killer in California by name of Hall said with regard to the genocide in Round Valley Wars during the 1850s, okay, nits make lice, kill their babies, the nits, because they grow up to be these lice. And that was the way they were viewing their little project. That's what the Methodist minister turned U.S. Army Colonel John Shivington said at Sand Creek. Mm -hmm. Kill all big and little. Remember, boys, nits make lice. Uh, these are all these quotations are one to three centuries before Heinrich Himmler starts talking That's about right. That's right. the Jews in uh, the camps, mm-hmm. Poland as being similar to de-lousing. Yeah, there's the mindset. Mm-hmm. The Himmler quote is appalling to people as it should be, then how is it that Shivington and Hall and the Puritan fathers, the the very first settlers to show up in uh, what they called New England's shores, the way they characterized, perceived targets. Well, that... Uh, the targets here, the indigenous people, those inferiors that needed to be cleared from the land, the 
presented a, a mortal threat to civilizations. They understood it by being virtue of being different, mm-hmm. not to mention the owners of the land and so on. Well, that that's the thematic that's being projected and consequently internalized by audiences mm-hmm. the cinema. There's one thing I know, one thing I know, there's one thing I know. Don't believe half of the things that they show. Don't believe half of the things that they show. If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know. One thing I know, there's one thing I know. Only half of the story ever gets told. Only half of the story ever gets told. Yo, keep the TV turned down when I'm around. Sometimes I watch the television with no sound. Rap vids, it's comedies, it's all clowns. The news is horror slash thriller, but don't frown. There's one thing I know, these mofos lying. Don't show it in the news when black folks is dying. Facebook app for the Paris attack. The Niger missing girls, they didn't get jacked. Some of these journalists, they should get slapped. But they bias only shine certain parts of the map. One thing I know, they don't like black. Sad car, you're getting shut down for spitting facts. A lot of these rappers weren't built like that. More inner skinny jeans, how they get into that. One thing I know, if you ain't into facts, we can't chop it up, fam, we can't interact. If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know. One thing I know, there's one thing I know. Don't believe half of the things that they show. Don't believe half of the things that they show. If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know. One thing I know, there's one thing I know. Only half of the story ever gets told. Only half of the story ever gets told. Believe nothing that you hear and only half you see. That's something that my granny told me when I was free. I took it further. Don't believe nothing, I'm a learner. Belief implies a lack of knowledge. I seek, I'm a searcher. I read and observe the masses of sheep. Fleet and be murder. Before they take a second to think, they're raising a weapon. I blink and they're aiming it straight in my direction. I duck and ain't no one giving me any cover. I'm stuck. Seen someone to see one face down in the muck. Drowning a multitude in mess. Ones will pull out the bluff. A lot of shit that they spit don't fit like a glove When you put it all together you can tell it's corrupt It's rough, uncut and tough, trying to wake them like snuff If you're awake man, it's bait, man can tell when they bluff enough If there's one thing I know, what they plan's not misleading us One stay above If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know One thing I know, there's one thing I know Don't believe half of the things that they show Don't believe half of the things that they show If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know One thing I know, there's one thing I know Only half of the story ever gets told Only half of the story ever gets told If there's one thing I know, it's to think on my own Heard it like you, still I question what I'm shown Can't believe the news, cause the truth ain't getting told How terrorists blow themselves up and their passports stolen If there's one thing I know no, there's no fire with no smoke How, How did ICs get their hands on their bombs? Ah. Military ah. training, their guns and their funds yeah. Documents state CIA was involved yeah. There's one thing I know, people should know Ooh. Divide and conquer, used by kings on their thrones no. Now by the governments, the tactic is old Spreading panic and fear, the solution is control yeah. There's some things I know and there's some things I don't oh. Knowledge is power, so I listen when they spoke yeah. Take it all in, read books, take notes yeah. If you knew better, you do better on the road. If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know. One thing I know, there's one thing I know. Don't believe half of the things that they show. Don't believe half of the things that they show. If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know. One thing I know, there's one thing I know. Only half of the story ever gets told. Only half of the story ever gets told. If there's one thing I know, I am made in his image. So that's God's face looking at me in the mirror. I see the unseen like the doggone clearer. They're dealing in eugenics like Darwin and the Fuhrer. I'm dealing with the Nile Valley. Black was much purer. Black girl, black pearl. Look at you and see my mother's face. Love all races, but ain't in love with any other race. Make it out the bits, that's a clever wish. Lifestyles like this be negative. Effort benefit. Government be lying, but we ain't buying, they selling it. How when he crying, the crime, they said man. Was terrorist, yeah. real bars in Robin Island. There is a cell in it. Uh-huh. Too dark, true talk. My shadow got a silhouette. Uh-huh. Relevant, still a threat. Can't copy with carbon. My light can't darken. I am blacked out. Four shades from the darkest. Look for me in the world when light There's markers. one thing I know. There's one thing I know. One thing I know. There's one thing I know. 
Don't believe half of the things that they show Don't believe half of the things that they show If there's one thing I know, there's one thing I know One thing I know, there's one thing I know Only half of the story ever gets told Only half of the story ever gets told There's 2,000 odd movies that I'm talking about. There's about 10,000 television segments, too, I might add. Uh, so yep. Whether you're going to theater or watching at home, westerns were major fare in primetime television. I mean, now all you get is cops and FBI and all of that stuff. You don't see westerns. For whatever reason, I guess the uh, pacification of the general population, the, the non-indigenous populations become a priority, and so the indoctrination goes that way to valorize the police and the FBI and the mm-hmm. CIA, all of that, okay, which they do it various ways. Dare I mention the name Bill Cosby? <laughs> <laughs> you remember... Uh, <laughs> Rendering the uh, secret agent stuff uh, quite acceptable and normalizing it by way of comedy. And yep. I, I spy. I, yep. 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 And George Jackson yep. actually talks about that in yep. uh, 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 what is it, Solid Ad Brother? He talks about that, and now that's what we was talking about last time when they still. When you try to play with them fools, they remember and they gonna come back. So you can sell out. We still throw you away. They still throw you away like trash, and also thematically. Uh, one of the things you pick, you I picked up on, I really picked up on in the book. You know, you was talking about Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, off in there. Yeah. You know, that was a staple in my house. My mama used to watch that shit all the time, right? When I was a little kid. Yeah. And the, and uh, another one is Chuck Connors was a better Indian. And then another thing I want you to pick up on, <laughs> yeah, six foot tall Aryan Nordic, Hymnless cousin. Or he's my size, yeah. okay? He was a big, <laughs> was a big white boy. You know, he was the rifle yeah. man. You know, <laughs> and another thing I picked up on um, thematically that they put in there in the movies uh, is the same thing they put with African men. You had a whole section in there. You know what they do to white women? Mm-hmm. You know yeah. that was a whole section. I didn't know that was. I thought that was. I thought they just like to put that trope on us Africans that we couldn't. White woman come in the room, we fall. Oh shit! It's a blind <laughs> white woman. You but, know what they do to white women, don't you? That that line that verbatim are very close in about a half a dozen films. I, I name a couple of them there, but it's more often than that. And by implication, of course, but much, much more broadly held than that. And yeah, but the, the, actually the imagery crosses over from time to time. You look at, the, I think, the second iteration of Last of the Mohicans and the Sashin, the, the head of the Hurons. Supposedly, I mean, Hurons have been out of existence by uh, 1763, which is, that's when Last of the Mohegans is set. There hadn't been any Hurons around for a hundred years at that point. But nonetheless, Fenimore Cooper had heard of the Hurons. And, uh, yeah. In any case, <laughs> the Sashim is painted like... I've seen um, African, West Africans painted the same way. I've never seen an indigenous person painted this way. And it's black and white. Mm-hmm. Okay. But dark skin and white paint, which is what would be in Africa, is replicated here by painting the body black, and, or at least the face, and then the white imagery on it. So you get this, I don't know what to call it. It's seen one wog, seen them all kind of thing. When they're in a certain mm-hmm, state of chapters, mm-hmm. they all look alike. So they're interchangeable. Savages in Africa, savages here. Uh, John Ford, which depicted all manner of Western peoples from North Dakota all the way down into to Mexico at various points, and Cheyenne and so forth, and filmed all of it in Monument Valley. Yeah. So that 
among other, you get this geographic distortion in the understanding mm-hmm. of the general population. You think the entirety of the United States, west of Mississippi, looks like Monument Valley, this spectacular <laughs> geography, which has nothing to do with the uh, cultures that are being depicted at all. Like <laughs> Cheyenne culture could not have been Cheyenne culture in Monument Valley. They would have had to have something closer to Diné culture, Navajo. And it's Navajos who are being used as the props to portray. All of Kiowas, as he always, for whatever reason, decided in his movies you had to mispronounce Kiowa. Okay. <laughs> kind of hip. You got the nifty pronunciation of, or mispronunciation of the name. Okay, there's one point, though, that and she wore a yellow ribbon where all of the Plains tribes come together in the aftermath of cuts during their threat to roll the United States right back into Washington, D.C. and maybe drive them into the sea. Hmm. Okay? Kind of what they always said the Palestinians want to do to the Israelis, if I remember right, hmm. but um, I'm not sure... <laughs> Ford was that astute. Nonetheless, putting this together and <laughs> the drummers from during the council, all these different peoples coming together, they're having this grand council to strategize war against the white man. And they're all of the drummers are lined up along a hollow log beating on it, which is exactly what you got out of a Tarzan movie. I can't speak to Africa whether anybody beat logs. (laughs) Used them as a percussion instrument for communication or whatever. That's a standard fare in Tarzan flicks, but it was all of a sudden, here it is with the Plains Indians lined up where they got the logs. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's no big trees growing around here anywhere, but... He cut and tailored this log and hollowed it out and dragged it somewhere in the middle of the desert so we can line up and beat on it. Because <laughs> that's what doing the symbol of savagery. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we could go on endlessly about distortions of cultures. I'm just talking about things that are glaring and grotesque. Mm-hmm. It's more sophisticated later on. Mm-hmm. We talk about black robe and things, but just... At the point where in the 19, late 50s, early 60s, Indian children are being exposed to this as well. That's right. That's right. And you have situations like at um, a Haskell, which is a boarding school in Lawrence, Kansas. They'd have an outing in the Saturday afternoon. Take the students to see a matinee, which is invariably going to be cowboys and Indians. Mm-hmm. And when the bugle blows and the cavalry comes charging at full gallop to save the noble settlers who are surrounded and Indians are riding around and around in circles, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all the settlers are inside the circle of wagons <laughs> undercover. The Indians just perpetually riding around and around and around howling and getting knocked off their horses, but they're running short of ammunition, and when you run out of ammunition, you can't knock them off their horses. Then they're going to get in there and do what they do to white women. You know? <laughs> so whatever. And then the bugle blows off in the distance, and the cavalry comes charging to the rescue. And the ending kids would be right along with everybody else caught up and cheering mm-hmm. the extermination of their own people. Yeah. Themselves, in effect. So you can kind of start to register now what effect this is having on a self-concept, sense of self-esteem, and so forth of the children involved. And this this is coupled to what the processing is in the, uh, the boarding schools, as they're called here, residential schools in Canada, which is to, as the head of the boarding school system, the guy who created it, uh, Richard Henry Pratt, put it, kill the Indian to save the man, mm-hmm. the humanitarian alternative to physical extermination was 
kill the Indian, save the man by indoctrinating children from as early a possible age to repudiate, feel revulsion at their own heritage and embrace a sign slot of menial labor mm-hmm. in the, you know, service industry stuff or manual labor for the superior society, the overburdened settlers that had come in. That's the indoctrination. What you look at the formulation and it really says it all. What did he just say? If you're an Indian, you can't be man, mm-hmm. which, by which means human. And to be human, you can't be Indian. Yep. So and the exterminatory logic is present in the humanitarian alternative. That's right. That's Why right. assimilation is as much a part of the genocidal package That's right. mm-hmm. as extermination. The point of genocide is to bring about the disappearance of target identifiable and targeted human groups as such. It doesn't have anything to do with the individual killing unless the killing is undertaken for the purpose of bringing about disappearance of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a synonym for mass murder. They already had a term for that. Was mass murder. Right. <laughs> a whole new word to encompass it. <laughs> they keep making stuff, but it's, it's boilerplate junk movies for the most part. Yeah. TV movie kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So they acquaint you with the theme, but it's not enough to maintain what's already deep set. What's already deep set. In indigenous population as well as settler population. Mm-hmm. It's sort of pathological interplay. So you got this grotesque misunderstanding, disunderstanding because it was deliberately induced of indigenous cultural realities, history, and the rest of it. But you know there's a book into that because in order to create this disinformation with regard to the indigenous, they had to create an equivalent or greater amount of disinformation with regard to the settlers, the invaders. Whoever, yeah, and that—that's how it works. Mm-hmm. So this is much a disservice if there's a value placed on truth and integrity in Hank Brown's terms. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's all this grand integrity of uh, scholarship and <laughs> knowledge and blah blah blah. This is great a disservice to the settler population as it is to the indigenous mm-hmm. population. Look, as a fine theoretical point, in concrete reality, it's not the settler population that tends to be living in those tar paper shacks and those right. cars back on Pine, you know, in a date that we were talking about a little while ago on Pine Ridge in 40 below winter temperatures and the rest of that, trying to survive. Yeah. And that's not, conditions have improved to a certain extent. You don't see so much people living in cars and tar paper shacks as such. It's cluster housing, which is not particularly fit for 40 degree winter either, but it's it's better than an old car. But mm-hmm. just as it was then, the poorest single community in the uh, United States portion of North America is Allen, South Dakota. Per capita income right now, $1,400. Whoa. Yeah. 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 And, and that's not hot Atlanta. It's not like you're going to be able to get through the winter with a couple of extra blankets. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say, well, the third world, but we're in the fourth world there soon. It's the indigenous world. And it's um, and we're gonna go to the next question. I did want to say something about what you said. It's kind of like um, they have these total fabrications, and what it does is embed in your the psyche of the colonized indigenous people, as well as what the, the the movies they do with all those colonized people when they fabricate these dumb bars. It's always that you'll have you'll. I mean, I've been in com- conversations with people when I'm talk. I'm elucidating. Some of the things, you know, I might have read in a book like A Hundred Years of Lynchings, they're making you eat your own penises. Uh, some, yeah. of the, some of the stuff that's happened to us as, as colonial subjects. And, you know, but 
this is the movie. This is the purpose of what you said in those contours, right? They'll say, well, what if there wasn't there one good white person? Wasn't Kevin Costner in that motherfucker with you? Won't he come save me? You know, what about uh, the long walk home? Won't somebody walk my ass home? Won't somebody? It's, it, that, that's movie. It's pure fiction. And like you just said, the fact of the matter that you cannot, you can't even, a lot of the times, the majority of the times, you can't even distort these guys. You can't even distort it. You have to totally fabricate the shit. So yeah. it, it's just really, really crazy. And like you say, you haven't been, in, uh, you haven't seen, like you said, it's popcorn, the, the latest iterations. You know, <laughs> one of the latest iterations we've seen, uh, probably about like four years ago, you know what I'm saying? It was on a show called Banshee. You know, you remember Banshee? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. So we remember Banshee. It was a show that came on uh, Skinamax, a.k.a. Cinemax, you know what I'm saying? But it was on Amazon Prime Stream, and I needed to cook some eggs and cook some egg whites, and I was just had it on while I was cooking. And, um, you know, it was one of the actually one of the last uh, uh, shows that uh, Big Russ did, Russell Means. He was in actually in there for a couple episodes. But one of the tropes was the, there was a crazy Indian in there named Chayton, and he was trying to rally his people. They were on a reservation. You had a guy that represented the BIA. He was put forth as the good Gunkenden Indian. Chayton was a, the Malcolm X, so to speak. He was, you know, a sitting bull type. He was like, but don't we don't we uh, live like this and live like th- we need to take our people together? And he was crazy. He didn't like the law. And then the good Indian was scared of him. He was ashamed of him. Then there was a black man, a Negro, right? Now, he was married to a white woman, of course. And he was a cop, of course. And when Chayton interacted with the Indian, you know, it was the one thing I was like, yeah, with the Negro, the Negro. I'm sorry, creature. I was like, oh, yeah. Chayton said, my brother. This is the Indian. He said, my brother, me and your people, we know the same pain, same struggle. We fought as one and uh, against this white man. We have the same struggle. We need to try to, you know, work it out together. He said, I am not your brother. I am an American cop. Do you know the whole litany I'm going to say? And yeah. so it, it was like, you know, at that point, I was like, that mother, kill that <laughs> You know, you know, yelling at screen and shit. You know, chain kill that. Anyway, but anyway, that's another thing. Come, that's, I'm sorry, people. That wasn't professional. Uh, but uh, you know, and then of course he was crazy, and he was he was a nationalist. You know, pretty much for all intents and purposes, he was a nationalist. And of course, you know how all nationalists die, whatever. If it's a Hollywood production, you know they always end up bad fate and they're crazy. But that was the latest reader. It's the same shit over and over. And yeah. the good white guy. And they always set it up. They set up the ideas of nationalism to tear them down. You know what I mean? It's like a, yeah, it's they, like a domino. They set up the they African it up here. And, and Native American. And then they say, this is why it's crazy. And this is why it's crazy. <laughs> and of course, the, the Negro was married to a white woman. And Chayton wanted to keep everything for himself. He was out of touch. And the, the more insidious thing, you can go on, uh, uh, you can do a Google. A lot of the things they say is, the reason why the Indians are the way they are because they can't stop drinking. I've never heard that replied to us. We can't stop smoking crack and yep. having babies. And it's re- it's really sickening. Uh, and- yeah, it's a genetic thing with Indians. They yep. Say. Yeah. Uh, Indians say that. AA is real big. Okay. You're predisposed genetically to have this response to alcohol. Not true. Yeah. No. <laughs> and if you think about it, you know, drunken Irish. Yeah. Which is what I want to call the team at uh, Notre Dame, you know, just yeah. <laughs> of all the mascots and stuff, drunken Irish, papist pigs, something, uh, <laughs> something kind of equivalent. All right. But yeah, there's really heavy alcoholism problem among the Irish. Mm-hmm. So what's the genetic connection between American Indians and Irishmen? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Can't really find that. No. Well, can you find another connection? Yeah. Colonialism. Mm-hmm. 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 Exactly Which right. also goes to crack and such. But, hey, <laughs> I live in Adams Park, so I know, I find my Ripple wine bottle in my uh <laughs> Ripple wine used to drink it. I haven't seen any Mad Dog bottles lately, though. So <laughs> maybe the style has changed. I think uh, the style that Armani was, Springs, all of that. Yeah, that was when we were kids. That MD twenty twenty. Yeah, you know, nobody want to be a thug no more. Yeah, you know, they want to be hip. Yeah, they don't have an MD <laughs> grape. <laughs> oh my God, it tastes. Oh, anyway, next question. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next question. <laughs> 
So in the same chapter we were just talking about, you um you you put uh wait, excuse me. You properly put what you term as discourses of postality in their proper place. And you state that the that you state those type of discourses can provide useful information, but you give this caveat, and this is a quote. Whatever utility that may yield they may yield is however entirely dependent on recognizing from the outset, the ultimate vestiture of their interests is preserving the hegemony of Euro supremacism. This means basically that nothing is in a post stage, as the world is still constructed constructed on a geopolitically European imperial colonial edifice. And to state otherwise is to tell the colonized to stop whining and get over it, because we can assimilate into their colonial structures. This sounds like a Netflix movie. And all post-talk is predicated on the fact that they gave you savages a chance, but you couldn't suppress your atavistic nature. In regard to colonialism, which is still in full effect, and is inseparable from genocide, you state quite astutely that, viewed with this degree of precision, no room obtains for the usual sorts of equivocation. There are no good colonizers to the counterpose against to, to the counterpose against bad colonizers, no more than there could be good Nazis. There are only those whose first commitment is to destroying colonialism root and branch, and those whose sense of self-interest slash entitlement dictates its preservation, preservation, whether by their direct and knowing participation in its imposition or through the more mealy-mouthed acceptance embodied in their ignoring, discounting, relativizing, or otherwise trying to explain away its genocidal effects. We just talked about that. Can you talk about these discourses in postality and how they represent a primary tactic of further domination and control? Well, okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first off, the only post that I actually have ever really been fond of was post-Toasty's Breakfast Series. (laughs) (laughs) So just sort of <laughs> truth in advertising going in. But, you know, <laughs> something is post once it's over. That's as opposed to pre. Pre being before the fact, post after the fact, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, how exactly you arrive at post-colonialism, post-coloniality, as they call it, that condition with a colonial structure alive and well and being maintained, actually serving as a predication of the uh, socio-political economic structure that you inhabit. Oh, well, interesting. But that's another one of those slights of hands. If you declare that colonialism is past, then it's no longer something you need to confront. Perhaps mm. legacy of it, but not the ongoing reality, which means that anti-colonialism is no longer an operant condition. It's not part of consciousness. You can then proceed to really making things more comfortable for the society, which you exist, more equitable, more just for the colonizers. Okay. Post-colonialism comes in to being as a term of discourse with essentially the repeal of classical colonialism, overseas colonialism, European colonialism projected into Africa, into Asia, into the Americas. Okay. In a formal sense, that was pretty much eradicated. I think Portuguese were pretty much. All right. You see how war was about to go into that postality bullshit. I know y'all want to finish that one, huh? Not to worry if you want to finish listening to Wielding Words Like Weapons with Ward Churchill, Part 2. All you have to do is go to our store, and there you will have access not only to this particular interview, but to all of Conscientization 101's unabridged interviews, musical commentaries, and merchandise. And most importantly, you will be supporting 100% independent media. We promise you, just like with all of our unabridged interviews, the podcast was only the tip of the iceberg. We touch on so much more, so you definitely want to get the unabridged interview for 
wielding words like weapons with War Churchill, part two. Where in addition to what you just heard, we present a more in-depth analysis of indigenous people in film and discuss the mendacious term postality and its use as an ideological weapon for the further domination and exploitation of colonized people and much more. So we know you want to finish hearing Wielding Words Like Weapons with Ward Churchill Part 2. Link to this unabridged interview is in our show notes, so pick that up now. Also, like we said in the last episode, I want to give a special shout out to Zari Sundiata, Managing Editor, for editing our unabridged interviews so this podcast episode could be possible so she can pick through all that so she decided what you hear and she made it all coherent especially the good material and stuff like that now thank you very much Zari but hey like I said before pick up the unabridged interview and you will get the unabridged real deal content yeah alright this episode has featured music from um. Conscientization 101, Decolonize This, Properly Defining Settlers, Part 1, from our musical commentaries collection, Big Cakes, One Thing I Know Remix, featuring Magical, Paperboy, E&J, and Big Frizzy, from his album, No Expenses. Links to the featured music are, once again, in our show notes, in addition to linking to Brother Ward's wielding words like weapons, selected essays in Indigenism 1995 through 2005. We've also included links to other works by him. Now, don't forget, when you visit us at conscientization101.com or c101magazine.com, sign up to our mailing list for exclusive information and downloads. Hit up our store where you can download our free gift today. Pick up an Underbridge interview or two. Pick up a few musical commentaries and a shirt. Support 100% independent media so we can continue to learn from each other. Also, don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Conscien1. That's C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-1. On Facebook at Conscientization101. And Instagram at C101Editors. Oh yeah, we've also added some new must-read texts to our library on the site, which include Kwame A. Okoto's Nation Building, Theory and Practice in African-Centered Education, 2nd Edition, Kobe K.K. Cambone's Cultural Misorientation, The Greatest Threat to the Survival of the Black Race in the 21st Century, and D. Brown's classic book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. We will link to the book write-ups in our show notes as well. And also, with all of our books in our library, we have read them all. Nobody tell us what to put off in the library and stuff like that. We read them all cover to cover. That's how we know these books have been vetted and approved for conscientization. Well, all right, it's time to be out for now. We want to thank Brother Ward for taking time out of his schedule to dialogue with us. Y'all pick up his book today, if you haven't, and we'll see you next time on part three and the conclusion of our series, Wielding Words Like Weapons with Ward Churchill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Peace.